0: Well, good morning. One of the things I love about preaching is that you spend all week saturating yourself in a text, meditating on a certain principle of the Christian faith. And then you have awesome worship leaders like Brad, like Dalton over at Spanish Trail that put together these songs that are singing about this very truth that you've been thinking about all week. And then it's just like an explosion of emotion. I mean, I sat over there and I thought I was gonna hit Brian Barlow. I, I'm sorry, brother, if I almost hit you. I was, that was good stuff because I've been meditating on, a, on, a, on an idea all week. And I'm excited to share it with you this morning. If you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Heath Wilson. I'm one of your pastors here at Hillcrest. Uh, I'm actually over at our Spanish Trail campus, and so I don't get to be with you over here at Nine Mile very often. So I'm I'm glad to be here uh, this morning. Uh, to all our Spanish Trail folks, uh, we want to welcome you here. I miss you guys, uh, and I will see you hopefully either this Wednesday or this coming Sunday. Um, but I'm glad to be here with our Nine Mile brethren. If you're online, uh, we want to welcome you as well. Uh, We know that a lot of you are still wanting uh, to take some precautions when it comes to socially distancing and the like. And so we want you to know that we miss you, we love you, and we are ready to welcome you back whenever you feel comfortable and ready to come uh, and join us in person. So I'm especially excited today because I actually just uh, celebrated seven years of marriage uh, so my wife and I, we got married seven years ago. Yeah, go g- give her a round of applause, please, for my wife's sake. My wife, Elsa, uh, seven years uh, we've, been, we've been together, and I love you, babe. Happy anniversary. And so this weekend, uh, we actually took uh, a, a, a night. We, we took about 24 hours, and we just kind of got out of town. Uh, it's something that we don't really get to do very often because we have three young boys who are, are very much a handful, and so my, uh, my folks came down to watch our, our kids, and we just kind of got away. And my wife works really, really hard. Uh, she's a hard worker. She teaches part-time, mother of three, three boys. And so I said, you know what, babe? You know what? I'm going to plan the trip. I'm going to plan the trip. You're just going to go on the trip, and I'm going to treat you like a queen. And so that's what we did. So, I organized my, my mom and my sister to come down to watch our, our, our three boys. Um, I researched all the restaurants and things to do in Destin. That's where we went. We went over to Destin. Um, all the activities that would fill our, our, our little getaway. And then, of course, I, I booked the hotel. And when I went to book the hotel, there were just really two criteria I thought were important one, it needed to be in Destin, and two, well, The price, right? It had to be affordable. If you know me, uh, you know affordable, uh, according to Heath Wilson standards, is different than, than most. And so I go and I spend about an hour on one of those websites, you know, and I'm searching through all the different options available in Destin. And I finally hit the purchase button, put in my debit card information. And then right as I did that, right after I hit the purchase button, Two other criteria popped into my head that would have have been important to look at, which is the hotel rating, the number of stars it has, and and the customer reviews. I overlooked those things. But, you know, hey, we're going to go have a good time. So we get to the hotel. Uh, I guess this was Friday night. We get there, and I knew something was going wrong. I didn't really think about it all that much, but I kind of hinted at it, I kind of thought about it for just one second. So we're going to check in, and a guy storms out into the lobby area. He's, he's kind of angry, and he, and he tells the, the desk attendant there, not so politely, that he's leaving the hotel. He's not staying in this room because it's musky. That's what he says. I thought, well, hey, you know what, Heath? You saved, some, you saved a couple of dollars, so you're going to be good to go. Don't worry about it. So... My wife, uh, we, we check in, we're walking, you know, walking up to the room, and my wife asked me, she, English is her second language, and so she said, hey, Heath, what, what is musky? What exactly does that mean? And, and I was trying to, I was having a difficult time trying to find the words to describe musky. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a stinky, like humid feeling, um, but I just couldn't really get it out. So, I, you know, get to the door, open it up, walk in, and I said, babe, this is Musky. This is musky. But hey, you know what? Saved a couple dollars. No big deal. So we're checking out the room. You know, when you go to a hotel room, you kind of look around. Oh, look here. There's that. There's this. And we found a, a couple of stray hairs in the, in, the, in the bathtub, which is always a nice romantic gesture for your anniversary trip. Speaking of gestures and, 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 and romanticism... There was a, 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 a very smell of, of tobacco, used tobacco in the air, which really just, you know, just mm, that does it good. I noticed there wasn't a coffee pot. So I go downstairs and I ask the lady, hey, you know, we drink coffee. Could, could we have a coffee pot? And she says, well, let me go see if I can dig one up. And so she goes to the back, five minutes later comes and gives me this machine. What she said was a coffee machine. I'm going to take her at her word for, with that. But I, it was so old I didn't know how to work it. But she did say, hey, I was kind enough to wipe away some of the marks and the dust in the, 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 the coffee cup, the coffee uh, maker. The kicker came at 12 a.m. That, 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 that night. We were sound asleep. And this noise started, just cranked up out of nowhere. And, you know, I knew Eglin Air Force Base was close to Destin. It was kind of in that region but I didn't realize that they just would swoop down these guys so close to the hotel. So I wake up in a panic, only to find out it wasn't an airplane. It was the air conditioning cutting on. <laughs> and it was, it was so loud. I thought that the building, the structural integrity of the building would be compromised because this AC unit kicked on. My wife and I, we were disserviced because we, I overlooked something. I overlooked something That even though we had a good weekend, it was was kind of unfortunate. We're going to talk about today a a principle, a theological point of our Christian faith that oftentimes gets overlooked. The ascension of Christ. The session at the right hand of the Father of Christ. And I don't know why it gets overlooked so much. I, I think... In some part, it just doesn't get the playtime that some really important events in the life of Christ get, like his virgin birth, the resurrection, the crucifixion. We all have holidays to to celebrate, and to memorialize those things, but the ascension just doesn't get a lot of playtime. But I hope today that we can look at what God's word says about the ascension and what that means for you and I, and that we can walk away with tremendous hope and what is a very hopeless time in our community. So we're going to look at the five aspects of the ministry of the ascended Savior. Now, anytime we study anything related to theology, we're studying the Apostles' Creed right now, we need to make sure that it is rooted in Scripture. The affirmations of the Creed are rooted in the affirmations of the Bible because the Bible is our inerrant source by which we draw and formulate our theology. So let's look at Mark 16. I'm going to be jumping all over the place. So I think we're going to have the, uh, the, the texts there on the screen so you can, you can look there. But Mark 16, verse 19, he says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. That's the first of three mentions of the historical event of the ascension of Christ. The next comes through our author, Dr. Luke, as he wrote the gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, 50 and 51, he says, then he led them out, referring to his disciples, as far as Bethany. He lifted his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And then the same author, Luke, in the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, he says this in Acts 1, verses six through 11. He says, so When they had come together, Jesus and his disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So those are the three mentions of the historical event of Jesus' ascension from earth into heaven. The Bible doesn't talk much about it the actual event proper, but the Bible, the New Testament has much to say about the implica- implications or the ramifications for us and our faith here today. And so what I want to do is, I, you know, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Jim, he, he talked about the resurrection, and it, what he said was, I'm not going to give a historical argument defending the historicity of the resurrection, the Bible affirms that the resurrection happened, so we're going to believe that the resurrection happened. And in the same way, I'm not going today to make an argument defending the historical rea- reliability of the ascension. The Bible affirms that it happened very clearly. So we're gonna trust that it actually happened. Just like any other event in human history that's recorded for us happened, we're going to believe that the ascension happened, that God, Jesus Christ, ascended into heaven. And now, today, today, This very day, he sits on his throne ministering to us, his followers, his people. And there are five aspects of that ministry that I want to point out today. Now, Pastor uh, Pastor Jim, he he said, you know, we only got one service over here at the Nine Mile location, no connect groups. So he gave me permission to go long today. So I hope you brought your cushion because we got five. We got five aspects of Christ's ministry. So the first one is the ascended Savior possesses a glorified body. The ascended Savior possesses a glorified body. Our Christ, our Jesus, he's not a disembodied spirit. He actually possesses a body. He's not a spirit that lives on in the life of his followers or in his, teacher, in his teachings. He is a embodied individual. Jesus has a body. Now, that's a glorified body. It's different from our bodies we're going to talk about in a second. But it is nonetheless a body. And the reason that that is good news for you and for me, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15 why that's good. 1 Corinthians 15, the, the, the apostle Paul, he, he's trying to make this connection. At the end of the book of, uh, of 1 Corinthians, he's trying to make the connection between Christ's glorified state And our hope in a future glorified state. And so he calls Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And and what he means by that is saying that Christ has died and Christ has risen. And Christ has inherited this glorified state. And we too will inherit this glorified state. Well, how do we know that Christ has inherited a glorified state? Well, the scripture tells us. If we look in Luke 24, if you go back later today and look at Luke 24... Luke 24 gives the proofs that he did indeed possess a glorified body. He does possess a glorified body. He shows the disciples the glorious scars of his hands and his feet. He actually grabs a fish, a piece of broiled fish, Luke is very specific, and he eats it. Now a spirit doesn't have scars. A spirit can't ingest food. We know that Christ has a glorified body. And we too can take hope in the fact that because we are in Christ, we too will inherit a glorified body. Some of you here today, your body's failing you. Maybe it's due to age. Maybe it's due to disease. Maybe it's due to sinful decisions in your past. But for some reason, and in some way, your body's failing you. Maybe you have a chronic disorder, a dysfunction, maybe you have chronic pain, the pain just will not go away, and the doctors cannot figure out what's going on. Maybe you're the alpha male, and that alpha male, you've, you've hit into your 50s and 60s, and you can't do what you could do when you were in your 20s and 30s. Maybe you're a woman who, for most of your life, you've built your identity on your looks, and as you age, you're, you're, you just don't look the same, and you've built your identity on that. And so what what do you do? Where's your hope? Your hope isn't in this earthly body. Your hope is in the glorified body. The reason our bodies fail us is because we are, in a lot of ways, we're still in Adam. You see this this phrase, in Christ? There's an idea in the New Testament uh, of us being in Adam. And what that means is when Adam fell... He didn't just fall spiritually, but he also fell physically. The fall affects every aspect of our being. And so, even though we can still be, as Christians, we are in Christ spiritually, we still are in Adam physically. And so that's why we still feel the effects of sin in our bodies. Physical pain, emotional pain. And so we're kind of in an in-between state. Where our spiritual reality doesn't reflect the physical Reality. They, don't, they don't match up quite. But because Christ has been ascended on high, possesses a glorified body, and he is the first fruits, those of us who are in Christ, that is our hope. So you can sit here today with pain and with aches, but if you set your mind on Christ, that doesn't have to consume you. That doesn't have to define who you are. That doesn't, define, doesn't have to define what you do. Because you're in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you have awaiting you a glorified body. And so you can take hope and you can take courage today knowing that is the case. Christ possesses a glorified body. But that's not the only ministry of the ascended Savior. The second ministry is that the ascended Savior has sent us the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit. John 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the moments when he will leave them. He will depart into heaven. He will depart to the Father's right hand. And he, and he says a couple of things. He actually says quite a few things to them in, in the latter portion of John. But he says in John 16 and 7 through 13, he says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's he will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the second ministry of the ascended Savior is that he has sent us the Holy Spirit. Now, we could talk ad nauseum. We could talk, and I think we are in a couple of weeks, going to talk about the Holy Spirit, so I don't want to take away from that. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is of is a, is a vital importance in the life of a Christian. But I, I want to just mention the way that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal Christ to us and the ways of Christ to us. Think about it in reference to the Scriptures, the ministry of the Holy Spirit concerning the Holy Scriptures. So we know that the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors to record the Holy Scriptures, right? We know that the Holy Spirit preserved the Holy Scriptures, over 2,000 years, so that we can say with confidence what we have here is what the original author wrote. He preserved the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Spirit illumines our minds when we read the Holy Scriptures so that we interpret them correctly. When we go to God's Word, we can ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us as we interpret. And then he empowers us. He empowers us as we seek to put into practice what we learn from our times in God's word. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is is all over us as we seek to try to find guidance and direction in this life. So let me ask you something. Are you lost today? And when I say lost, I'm not talking about someone that is far from God. I'm, I'm talking about a Christian that you just don't know where to go. You just don't know what the right move is. You feel like you're just kind of in a haze, in the dark, Maybe you're overcome with with anxiety. Maybe depression marks your life. You don't don't have to live like that. You can go to the Holy Spirit of God, pleading with Him to give you direction and guidance. That doesn't mean He's going to make your life all roses. But that does mean that He will be with you and guide you in this Christian walk. You can go to the Holy Spirit and that is the, one of the ways that Christ ministers to us from the Holy Spirit. Al Mohler has a beautiful quote when he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, without the Spirit's revelation of the things of Christ, the church would have no word to guide them. No instruction by which to live. No truth unto which to build their hope. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is You can't can't overestimate it, and you can't overstate the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us in our Christian life. Now, the third ministry of the Ascended Savior is that he intercedes as the great high priest. The Ascended Savior is our intercessor, he intercedes as our great high priest. I have a question. This is going to require an answer. This is not a rhetorical question. What was the tribe in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, they were, that were responsible for the priestly duties? What would that tribe be, class? The what? The Levites. Very good. The Levites. Now, the, the Levites were there as priests. Now, what does a priest do? Well, 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 a priest, his role is to enable God's presence and God's people to dwell peacefully. Because without the work of a priest, mainly offering sacrifices to God to atone for or pay for our sin, without that work, we could not dwell in God's presence peacefully. And you see this in the book of Numbers, right? If you read the book of Numbers, or really if you read any part of the Old Testament, you will see God's people sinning against God in such grievous ways that his anger flares up and he pours out his wrath on them. He destroys them because they've sinned against him. And so God, in his mercy, this is an act of mercy and grace, instituted this, this system of priests that came from the tribe of Levi. Well, if you flip over to the New Testament, specifically the book of Hebrews, what you're going to see is, is there was a flaw in the system. And the flaw was those priests, they would, they would die. Those guys 70, 80, 90 years, however long the Lord gave them, they would die, and they needed to be replaced. Or even worse, they would sin. And so they had to offer a, 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 a sacrifice for themselves, but then also then for the people. But that's where the author of Hebrews makes this connection that our great high priest, Jesus Christ, he, he didn't die. He died once, and he rose from the dead, and he's never going to die again. And, and, this, and this greater high priest, he didn't sin. He was tempted in all ways as we are, but without sin. He's our greater high priest. And so one of the ministries of the ascended Savior is that you, when you sin, you can go to God. You can go to Christ, and he understands the difficulty. He was tempted in every way that you and I, but he didn't sin. So he says, child, I know it's difficult. I know you have this this temptation, and it seems like it's overcoming you. It's overtaking you, and you feel like there's no way to escape. But I was faithful. And with my spirit, you can live faithful. And if you do sin, here's where it gets even better, brothers and sisters. When you do sin, he's sympathetic. And he goes to the Father, and he says, Father, this one's mine. I know they sinned. I know they offended you, but this one's mine. I've paid for their sin. Remember, you poured out your wrath on me so that you wouldn't have to pour it out on them. I am their advocate. I am their intercessor. You don't have to pour your wrath on them. And God doesn't. Because you have an advocate before the Father. You have an intercessor before before the throne of God. He is our intercessory. he is our God who intercedes on our behalf he's our great high priest so we can bring our sins to Christ and we can lay them there confident that we're not going to be judged for them because he has already been judged we can bring our temptations to Christ and we know with confidence that he will give us the strength to endure the temptation he will provide a way of escape so we can take our sins to him the fourth ministry of the ascended savior is that he reigns as the victorious king. He reigns as the victorious king. So when, when Christ, he ascended into, into heaven, in our text earlier, they mention this one little phrase that most of us probably overlooked at first, but it, but it says he sat down. Jesus sat down. Ephesians 1 says it, says it this way. Ephesians 1 verse 20 says that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews, in one of what is one of the greatest Christological passages of the New Testament, he says he, referring to Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now why is that so important? Well it's important for two reasons. The first is his sitting down, what that signifies to us is the completed redemptive work of Christ. Much like our beautiful friends over here in the yellow shirt, after a long day, a long week of disaster relief, you're tired, you're weary. You've been up since three o'clock preparing meals. or You've cut down like 15 chainsaws, uh, 15 trees with chainsaws. I was doing disaster relief with, I don't know if he's here today, Paul Madison. And I, I, I texted Melinda uh, and I said, Melinda, when I grow up, I wanna be like Paul Madison <laughs> because he is something else on a chainsaw. But Paul, I'm sure, was tired. And so he went home, probably showered off, and he sat down in his chair. And in the same way Jesus sat down, by saying, everything that the Father has sent me to do, it's done. He put me on a mission to go and to redeem his people once and for all. And I did just that. I paid the penalty for their sins. And I'm seated at your right hand, O Father. And so that session, what the theologians call the session of God shows, first of all, he has completed the task that that he set out to do. The The second meaning or the second significance of Jesus sitting down is that it displays his sovereign rule. Jesus rules and reigns sovereignly. Now, we don't, we don't do this in our country so we don't have a king. We have a president. Our president is the highest office in the land. And so when the, king, when the, when the president, when he sits down at his desk for the first time, it's a, it's a special moment, but it's not a coronation. But when he does sit down, who's all in the room? Well, his cabinet members are gonna be in the room. There's gonna be people taking a photo of him. There's the press corps that are gonna be capturing the moment because he is in saying By sitting down saying, this is my desk. This is my office. I'm going to to guide and direct in my position the country. And in the same way, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. And the implications for for us... With this specific point that he reigns sovereignly is amazing. Why is it amazing? Well, because God is in control of everything. There's nothing that God does that, that happens on this earth that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't happen because of God's control or at least him allowing it to happen. He, nothing happens. No, there's no force over him that dictates that will down to him. He is free of all. And he moves Creation. He moves history for his glory. He desires to be glorified. He desires to be honored. He is the sovereign king who reigns and rules over everything. But he doesn't just do it for his glory. Catch this, he does it for our good as well. God reigns sovereignly for his glory, but for the good of his people. Which totally changes, as Brian Davis said here at the Nine Mile Campus a second ago, it totally changes the way we look at like a hurricane smashing into our homes. We know that God controlled that hurricane. And even though it's difficult and it's hard to wrap our mind around, and we may not understand in this moment or we may not understand in all of our lives why God allowed that to happen but we can face that situation with utmost confidence that God who allowed that to happen, he's working it for our good. Romans eight twenty eight. he's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That means that you can go and, and, and confront the darkest moment of your life. And not just you know, the annoyances of life, but the gut-wrenching pain, the phone call that you never wanna receive. You can face that moment with a confidence That Jesus Christ sovereignly is reigning over that specific event. And although the pain isn't going to be less, the confidence of knowing that you have a Savior who intimately and deeply loves you and He is walking with you through that situation brings an indescribable hope to the situation. Jesus reigns. Jesus is King. He's our victorious, sovereign God. And we can take confidence in Him. Now, I want to move into the last one here. The ascended Savior is preparing a place for His followers. An ascended Savior prepares a place for His followers. John 14 says this. Let not your heart be troubled. This is, again, Jesus talking to his disciples. Believe in God, but also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The ascended Savior prepares a place for his people This is very much tied into the first point. The fact that he has a glorified body and we await that glorified body. We too await a glorified home. The pastor said it a second ago. We're just pilgrims passing through. We, we don't have to hold on to this world and the things of this world with a, with a ninja grip because we know we have something far superior in heaven. He's recreating the heavens and the earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He's recreating Eden for a better Eden. He's creating a table, a feast that we just sang about earlier, where where we can sit with him and we can dine with him. And we can glory at the fact that he has called us to be at the table with him. Not because we've done anything good, not because we've earned a spot, but because he's glorious and he's gracious and he's compassionate. So the question is, are, are, are you, are you going to be there? Is he preparing a place for you? Is that something that you're going to have to look forward to? Because the alternative to that is destruction and is God's wrath. <laughs> I've really enjoyed the last couple of, I don't know if it's been the last month or so, I've really gotten into Presbyterian hymns. We're the Baptists. We have a good hymn, Right? But the Presbyterians, they've got some good hymns too. And and one of them says, he says, "If, if it wasn't for you, God, to call me out and to prepare a place for me, I would have never come. But I can look at the table set before me with gratitude and thankfulness. And so God's got a place for you. Don't be like the the ones who who reject him. Don't be like the ones who say, I'm I'm gonna sit outside and starve rather than come to the table and eat. He's got a place for you. What do you have to do? Well, you have to give your life to Jesus. We we sometimes make salvation like an easy thing, and and I get the, the, the idea behind that. Salvation should be and is, according to the scriptures, not a difficult thing to grasp, but it's not easy. You have to give your life to Jesus. You have to get, give up trying to earn God's approval and say, the only approval I need is in Christ Jesus. That's my approval. You have to repent of your sins. You have to say, I, "That's that way of life that I was living, that is not the way of life that I want to live anymore. Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And in you I can find hope. That's how you get a place in the kingdom of God. He prepares a table. He prepares a place for you. Now one of the difficult things about not preaching a text of scripture but preaching kind of a theological point is how do you, how you tie them all together? How do I tie together? What's a good next step for all of us when we're talking about the ascended Savior possessing a glorified body, sending the Holy Spirit, interceding for us as a great high priest, reigning as the victorious king, and preparing a place for his followers, how do you tie that together? And the phrase, I'm sure you've heard this phrase. Have you ever heard the phrase, he or she is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? Have you heard that before? Is that, okay. Can I just, can I be honest with you? I think that's one of the dumbest phrases out there. I think that is so idiotic. And I think it goes against anything that the scriptures tell us. Now, I get what. Th- I get the people that say that. I get what they're, trying to, what they're trying to say. A guy or a girl who sits there and reads the Bible all day, and they don't actually do anything with what they're reading, they're not any earthly good. And I get that. But my contention would be that person is actually not very heavenly minded. They're actually more earthly minded. Because the heavenly minded person is going to engage with God. That is going to be their daily bread. It doesn't matter if, if they get to hang out with their friends. It doesn't matter if they have a good job or if they have a lot of money or they can watch netflix for 15 hours straight their daily bread is being with god and they're going to do anything and everything to have time with god but then they're going to go and they're going to put that into practice they're going to put on a yellow shirt and they're going to go help someone five hours down the road take a tree out of their home they're going to help their neighbor they're going to pray for their neighbor. They're going to not be invested in themselves, but others. That's the person is, heavenly, is earthly good. And the reason they're earthly good is because they're heavenly minded. And so as we're contemplating theological points of doctrine, I think that the next step for all of us is to become a little bit more heavenly minded. Colossians 3 would put it this way. Set your mind on things above. Where Christ is. So, so how do you do that? How do you set your mind on things above? Right, we have a counseling team. I love our counseling team. I'm part of the counseling team at, at Hillcrest. And that's one of the go-to passages that we exposit and that we teach through. Because there's so much related to the beauty and the joy and the efficacy of our Christian life. In setting our mind on things above. In becoming more heavenly minded. So, so how do you do that? Well, here's what you do. You take, that, you take the one-minute devotional that you got on Amazon, and you don't give it away because then someone would, would read it. You go and you burn it. Because if that's all you can give God, you are not going to be heavenly-minded. If you can only give him 60 seconds of your day, you're not going to be it heavenly minded. You're going to be earthly minded. You're going to be thinking about this. And you're going to think about how you hate your coworkers, And you're going to be thinking about your neighbors and how they're bugging you. You're going to be thinking about how bad your kids are. You're going to be thinking of all these things here on earth and you're not going to put your gaze up onto God, onto the ascended Savior. It takes work to be heavenly minded. It's almost, <laughs> this is the thing I love about sometimes in, in, in the church, in church culture. We, we we think that we can just kind of become Christians and then everything is just going to kind of fall into place. That we're just going to be godly because we're existing. Like God is just going to, oh, now you're godly. If I just do that, then I'm godly. That's not actually how it works. It takes a lot of work to be godly. Just like this six-pack abs that you see right before you. It took a lot to get this. It took a lot of Cheetos. and It took a lot of Little Debbie snack cakes to get this six-pack. It takes a lot of work to be godly. It takes a lot of work to say, I'm not going to focus on what I can see. I'm gonna focus on what I know to be true. And the fact is, the ascended Savior sits at the right hand of God. And if I can put all of my focus and all of my attention and all of my effort on that point, your worth to this earth is going to explode. Because at that point, you're not thinking of yourself. You're thinking of how you can serve your spouse and your kids and your neighbors and your family and your school and your community. You have to spend time with God. You have to stop scrolling Facebook and you've got to get before God in prayer, which takes time. It takes getting up early in the morning or staying up late at night, putting your cell phone down. There's nothing wrong with social media. There's nothing wrong with Netflix. I love a good Netflix show. But if that's what takes away from me getting on my face before God, I can't expect to be heavenly minded. There's no way. You've got to put away some of these earthly things that may in fact not be bad, but they're keeping you away from the best thing, which is time with your Father. So you gotta pray. You gotta spend time in God's Word. You gotta congregate with the Lord's people you got to make Sunday a priority. It's, it's almost like we've decided, we've got this individual approach to, to Christianity. We've decided that the Sunday worship gathering isn't important. Well, the Lord has is, is instituted this Christian, the thing we call Christianity, this Christian life, in such a way that this is vital. And without this, you will not grow in Christ now, that doesn't mean you have to be legalistic about it and you have to be every week. Dale Simmons is not at the door checking, check and roll. But what Dale Simmons will tell you is that this place, if you neglect this place because you want to go fishing, because you want to go play around to golf, and you do that time after time, week after week, you're not going to grow the way God wants you to grow. You're not going to be heavenly minded. You're going to be of no earthly good because you're not heavenly minded. And so as we contemplate these points the call today is to do just that to be heavenly minded what is it which point is it that speaks the loudest to you and in your situation today is it the fact that you your body's deteriorating your body's failing you but you can look at hope to a future glorified state are you lost today can you not find your way is the darkness just kind of creeping in? Well, you have a Holy Spirit that wants to guide you and lead you into all things in the Christian faith. Is it the fact that you have an interceding Savior for you where you can take your sins and your struggles and your pain and your guilt and you can put it all before him and he will wipe you clean of it? Is it the fact that God reigns supreme? And that's what you need today. You need to know that in the midst of a hurricane, in the midst of a trial in your life, that God is on his throne. Is that what you need to focus on? Is that how you set your mind on things above? Or is it the fact that there's a place being prepared for you? And you need joy today. You need hope today because there is a place for you indeed. This is God's word. And let all who agree say amen.